0: Hello, and welcome back to New Books in American Studies, part of the New Books Network. I'm Carrie Lane, the host of the channel. When we talk about stories of alien abduction in the United States, we often do so through a framework of belief versus disbelief. Do I think this story is true, or do I think it's false? Anthropologist Susan Lepselter asks, what happens when we instead listen to UFO talk ethnographically? Understanding it as a form of vernacular American poetics that must be made sense of within specific cultural, political, and historical contexts. In The Resonance of Unseen Things, Leppselter draws on years of interviews with experiencers, those who tell of being abducted by aliens, and participant observation at an experiencer's support group in a southern U.S. city. Her wide-ranging book considers abduction stories in relation to other narrative forms captivity narratives, conspiracy theories, frontier tales, offering new and shifting frameworks for making sense of the weird, the uncanny, the random, and the real. I hope you'll join us in hearing more about Dr. Susan Lepselter's new book. I'm thrilled to be talking today with Dr. Susan Lepselter, author of The Resonance of Unseen Things, Poetics, Power, and UFOs in the American Uncanny, published by University of Michigan Press in 2016. Dr. Lebselter, welcome to the show.
2: Thank you. I'm so happy to be here.
0: Well, we're super happy to have you here. Um, I, I figure if we could just begin, could you tell us a little bit about yourself? Where you were born, went to school, mm. your life outside this book?
2: Yeah, sure. So um, I was born in New Jersey and grew up there and in Pennsylvania and. Um, I went to uh, school, I went to a couple places for undergrad. I went to Boston University and Wesleyan University. And then I took about a decade off and I worked as a freelance writer and an English teacher um, in a high school and a few other jobs. And then I decided um, basically um, I was, I started um, at one point right after undergrad, a, a PhD program in English literature. And I just, I didn't really take to it. Um, and eventually, after after about a decade of working as a freelance writer, um, I realized I really loved writing about stories and poetics. But um, I wanted to have a more ethnographic component. I wanted to write about stories that I actually heard people um, telling out there in the world, rather than um, rather than you know sort of the canon of literature. So I went to graduate school at the University of Texas at Austin, which um, had. An interesting component in the cultural anthropology program there at the time it was called folklore. Then um, it's been called different things since then. Um, but basically, it was um, a pro, it was a fifth field of anthropology. Anthropology typically has is known as a four field discipline. This was a, a fifth field other than archaeology, physical anthropology, cultural anthropology, and linguistic anthropology. There was this fifth field called at the time folklore although it wasn't traditional folklore it was basically what we call expressive anthropology and it was a place where um you could really um approach expressive culture vernacular artistic culture from an anthropological perspective so that is where i did my phd and um yeah so that was my that's my educational background
0: I didn't realize you were also a New Jersey girl. Oh,
2: yeah. I am as well. Oh, are yeah. <laughs> Seems like a lot of us are.
0: <laughs> I think so. We go on to do great things. What can we say? <laughs> yeah. <right. laughs> um, so now let's, let's talk about this uh, most recent book, um, the resonance of mm-hmm. unseen things. So how did you get the initial idea for this book?
2: Well, um, I, I, sort of fell into this, um, this book in a way. Um, I was in graduate school and I had started to do an entirely different, um, ethnographic project, a more traditional ethnographic project, um, in many ways. And yet I was interested so much in the way people, um, tell stories about experiences. And I started to go just sort of for my own interest, um, to this abductee encounter group, or sometimes called an abductee support group. The name changed over the years. And um, I became completely immersed in this, in this community of people um, where storytelling was just completely front and center for how people um, communicated with each other and understood life. Um, stories were um, just, you know, the, the atmosphere that the people were, um, creating and um, you know, so I thought, well, I'll just you know write a few papers on this. I'll just keep hanging out. I really like these people. These people are fascinating. And pretty soon, it, it became clear that this was um, a book length sort of project. So I just stuck with it.
0: And what did your research for the book entail um, beyond sort of attending that initial support group?
2: Yeah, so that was where I did a lot of um, a lot of research. Was in the support group and also in the kind of community and that it, that it, um, generated, um, that sometimes, um, there were groups that split off. There were, um, communities of people that had, I, I met through others in the group. Um, and so I, I did a lot of, um, research hanging out with people who were around that community, um, in a fictional town, a fictionalized town, um, in the book, Um, and then after that, I went to, um, the town of Rachel, Nevada, um, a few times, um, and, um, listened to people talking there. And this is the town that's closest to what was then a kind of secret, uh, military base called Area 51 that had a lot of, um, UFO, um, sightings and um mythology and um accounts and reports and um there is there is said to be a ufo um hidden by the government at area 51 and it had become a place of of ufo tourism as well as a, just a kind of a rural place in the American West. So those are the two main places where I spent time um talking to people. Um and then the other part of the book is um really textual, looking at the ways in which stories circulate, not just, um, you know, face to face, but, you know, through books and magazines and movies and um, the internet and how that happens historically. So I don't make much of a distinction, um, I don't think, in the book between all of these venues of, of circulation.
0: Um, Once you had sort of gathered these different kinds of materials, Mm -hmm. um, what does your writing process look Mm -hmm. like? You know, do you write on paper first, Mm -hmm. by computer? Mm -hmm. How does that all start for you?
2: Yeah, I love that question. Um, (laughs) It would be great to do an entire show asking people that. So I feel like my particular writing process um, changes as I go along. So I have to, at this point in my career, I have to um, allow for the fact that I have a pretty long sort of gestational period where it seems like nothing's happening, but in fact, I'm thinking and dreaming and ruminating and, you know, seeing, seeing connections everywhere. And I might not get a lot of actual writing done during that time, but I think it's really essential to how the, how the um, eventual writing is, is going to emerge. And then I, um I brainstorm a lot. I kind of just start writing and this is now it's always on the computer. I used to write longhand. I feel like that's atrophied for me, unfortunately, but, um, I do, I write, um, just pages and pages. And what I do actually I have some tricks, um, for myself, like for example, in that early stage where it's sort of hard to get going, I often pretend that I'm writing to a specific person or people. Um, one of them is, um, as somebody whose um, vision I respect enormously and who's been a big influence on me. And I imagine that I'm writing her a letter. Um, sometimes I imagine I'm writing a letter to um, somebody else who I would want to understand what I have to say. So in that way, I'm always trying to think of the writing as um, basically having an addressee at all times and it makes it, and it just sort of remind myself, you know, I'm trying to say something to somebody. Um, so I just keep that dialogic structure in mind and it makes it much easier to write. Then I start to actually kind of do outlines and organize what I'm going to write. And then um, at some magic point that we all, I think, long for and live for, (laughs) eventually you get to that click where it's just flowing. And that's my favorite part of writing where, you know, in the earlier phases, my desk has to be organized exactly a certain way. And if there's a dog barking five houses down, it's ruined my day and all of that. But then at some point, you know, I'm writing while I'm waiting in the dentist's office and, you know, I'll like... Be writing on my phone in the supermarket line, and that's that's where it's flowing. So, so I think that these are the different steps, and then there's the revision, of course, which also can be difficult when you have already laid the grooves and you're trying to um, rechannel, <laughs> rechannel the flow of some of the of some of the material you've already laid out. But that's also, I think, an, a really important part of writing for me.
0: <laughs> I love that, and I also really like the idea of framing that it takes longer to write a book than you Mm -hmm. would like as a long gestational period. I plan to use that. Um, I, but I do think it's true, right? That sort of percolating time Mm -hmm. when the ideas are just kind of sitting there and they're flowing in and out of the front of mind to back of mind as you're working on other things. I I do think that can be really productive. And so do you, when you do your writing, is most of it at home or do you write in an
2: office? Um, I, I do both actually. Um, At home, I have a, I have an office that I really never use. I don't know why I've, I've changed it up so many times, hoping that it would be a good place to write. But now I, I write at my dining room table at home. Um, When I'm kind of really deeply um, immersed in a difficult part of writing. I tend to write on a couch, under a blanket, <laughs> um, on a laptop. <laughs> and um, and then I like to, there are parts of the writing process, like especially things like editing or revision, or parts that um, are, are maybe tedious in some way. I really like writing around other people um, in a coffee shop, sometimes with a friend, Um I have a friend who um I like to get together with and and we write together. Um so um but that that has to be at a at a time where um you know I, I don't need complete uh silence or solitude.
0: That sounds great. I like that mix of strategies, but then just for my image of it, when you're riding under a blanket, mm-hmm. do you mean that there's like a blanket across your lap or are you literally like a ghost under a sheet? <laughs> like, are you, is there a blanket? Yeah. Are you hiding? I'm picturing my five-year-old, you know, like oh, hiding uh, under a
2: blanket. No. Oh, I love that image. No, I know like the tent or the fort. No, I, it's not quite that romantic. <laughs> no, I mean, I'm kind of um, almost just huddled um, up you know, with, with a blanket on top of me um, sitting on a couch in the most comfortable position as possible. Because in a way, I think writers need to sort of try to forget um, the sort of the physical kinds of discomforts that can start to impede your writing. And so um, maybe that's why people, you know, smoke or eat candy. Or um, I I am a total addict of LaCroix. Like, I'll just go through... Um, a terribly ridiculous number of these cans of um, carbonated um, water. And and so the, the blanket and the couch is something similar where you're trying to maybe, I don't know if this happens to you, Carrie, but you're trying to sort of turn off all the physical noise in your environment. And so sometimes just getting really comfortable is the only way to, to get there for me, so...
0: I don't think I I don't have the couch parallel, but I do have I feel like no writing is so difficult that a cup of jasmine green tea yes. doesn't help. Right. I feel like really, how much could I complain as long as I'm <laughs> drinking a nice cup of tea while I'm doing whatever it is Excellent. I'm doing? Yeah. Well, so then let's turn let's turn to the book itself. Mm-hmm. Um the very first line of your mm-hmm. book is this is not mm-hmm. a book about mm-hmm. UFOs. So what what is right. it a book about?
2: Well, uh, when I say it's not a book about UFOs, um, of course, I mean that in a few ways. I mean, I'm not trying to either prove or quote unquote debunk the existence of UFOs. Um, I'm not trying to enter that debate at all. In fact, the the existence of those debates, like what does it mean to even debunk something or to um, try to express that something exists? Those are Um, structures that I'm interested in, and I see them as completely dependent on each other. I mean, the idea of um, trying to um, disprove something as as irrational or enchanted or unscientific um, has a history and is, um, is, you know, has a sociality to it. Um, so I'm not trying to enter into anything like that with is this, you know, do you believe in UFOs or not? Um, I'm also not trying to do a kind of traditional sociology of UFO belief or anything. I'm not looking at a bounded community. Um, instead, I became interested as I listened to people talk about either UFOs or other kinds of uncanny experiences and memories that sometimes had some connection to UFOs or appeared to people that might be connected to UFOs, that in the twentieth, mid-20th century and onwards in America, it seemed that the UFO was a sign that stood for an entire range of experiences and memories that weren't totally reducible or containable. And the um, cultural experience of living in that realm of, um, uncertainty, indeterminacy, um, insistence that there is something more, um, to life than what meets the eye. Um, the UFO, um, sort of allows people to, to enter that world socially and discursively in a way that isn't always, um, encouraged in, you know, kind of ordinary society. And so what I started noticing was that, um, What people would do as they were developing this this aspect of experience, um, kind of building a world that included the possibility of UFOs through talk, um, was that they noticed um, themselves that there's all sorts of different stories, um, both ordinary stories of life um, and uncanny stories that, that resonate with each other, that have points of similarity um, that have coincidences that, um, that become very meaningful. And um, I think this book is about several things, including what it means for people to understand that um, these resonant experiences um, tell us something about life that we can't necessarily always explain through one story alone. So I guess I would say in a way that this book is kind of about how uncanny encounters resonate with other kinds of more kind of materially recognizable experiences, Um, although those ordinary kinds of memories might be collective or historical. Um, So I think, you know, it's about this resonance that people understand um, and becomes a kind of creative and poetic expressive activity and a way to theorize um, all sorts of um, of well, in this case, American experiences of of power that surround, um, you know, different kinds of captivity and freedom. When you think about it, freedom is the sort of quintessential um, American trope, right? It's like this, (laughs) the country was founded for religious freedom. We have freedom. Everything is about, you have, you know, agency, you can pursue the American dream. But the other side of it is, uh, of freedom of course, is, is containment and captivity and, and abduction. And, um, UFOs are linked with abduction and the abduction narrative of, you know, space aliens abducting people is very similar to a lot of other stories that people either tell or recognize um, having to do with various kinds of containment or being caught, whether those are explicit, like, you know, something like slavery um, or Indian captivity narratives, or whether they are just these sorts of general senses that we have affects public feelings of being caught or stuck or feeling like there's some kind of power that operates in ways that is just too gigantic for people to understand through any one lens. Um, And so I really think the book is about the ways in which people try creatively to express um, this more full sense of power and life and being caught and the fact of the sort of the something more, the something that's beyond what you can um, just necessarily say, I know exactly what this is, right? It's unidentified, the flying object. Um, so that's, that's pretty much what it's about.
0: Well, yeah, I really like how you framed the book from the very beginning that, you know, rather than trying to think about UFOs in terms of what is real or unreal, true or false, you, you're... Prompting the reader to consider, you know, what happens when we listen to UFO right. talk ethnographically rather than in that that sort of true false binary, right. and and to sort of follow on what you said about resonance, I was really interested in your discussion of the term apophenia. Mm. If I'm pronouncing yeah, this correctly, right. uh, the experience of Perceiving connections between random or unrelated mm-hmm. events, but but as you ask, you know, who decides what's related or unrelated? Mm-hmm. And and I'd love to hear you talk a bit
2: more about that. I started to um, read about af- apophenia and, and psychology um, through through psychology, and sometimes when I when I talk about my book, um, people really want to go quickly to the sense that well, you know, this is diluted or you know, conspiracy theory is a, is a, is you know creating parallels where none exist. Um, but as, you know, if this, the line that you just quoted, um, you know, is, is um, something that we would have to ask as, as anthropologists, of course, when you're trying to not pass judgment or to defer judgment, certainly, but to listen to people, um, the ability to have the authority to say, okay, you know, this is a conspiracy on this on this plane, and this is a conspiracy theory on that plane, or these are patterns that um, exist because they're sort of objectively, um, you know, um, you know, repetitive in some, in some predictable way. And these are patterns that are just in the mind of the beholder. Well, all of those um, ideas have, have a kind of social and cultural um, aspect to them. So, you know, if if certain people say there's a pattern here and it's automatically dismissed that tells you something about the um privilege of who is really in charge of of um saying that their reality their world view um their experience is is just somehow empirically uh, truer than somebody else's you know so yeah, absolutely. I, I think that's the um, great and, thing about ethnography, uh-huh. basically, is that you, you aren't being asked to decide something like, um, you know, whose who's pattern is real. You're asked to decide what does it mean to say something is a pattern and to have your insight accepted or dismissed
0: yeah, it, it reminds me of when I talk to students about doing ethnography that, you know, whether something is right or wrong or good or bad is pretty much the least interesting question that you can ask. Yeah. right. There are so many more interesting questions.
2: Yeah, exactly. And, and the other thing is when you're when you I don't know if you find this, um, Carrie, but when you're working in the United States, um, your peers and readers are much more likely to want to disprove the patterns that are seen by the people whose stories you're telling. Like, I feel that if I were writing about, um, you know, some other kind of uncanny experience that was less familiar to people that hadn't been in the tabloids, that wasn't a way that people sort of said, no, I am not that, you know, I'm not going to be connected to that. That's not rational. Um, then then it would be a little uh, it would be more common sense for people who the kinds of people who might read this book, not to try to dismiss it or say, you know these this sort of you know pattern finding is is path you know not to pathologize it basically. um but when it's close to home, um people get very invested in in the kind of social register of of the pattern. And that's thoroughly connected to all of this.
0: Well, and I was going to ask about this later, but it it seems like now would be a good moment for it that, you know, I I have found also doing research in the U.S., particularly in the projects I've done that were on relatively Mm -hmm. privileged groups or individuals, right? When I studied high tech workers, it was right after the dot-com crash. So there was a sense that unemployed tech workers must be these, you know, young upstarts who flew too high too fast and are, you know, they deserve what they thing got. Thing. Right? So I was sort of writing against a certain narrative. And and I think one of the challenges of a project like yours is that many readers already think they know the people you interview yep. because they're familiar with caricatures of abductees or experiencers that circulate through American culture and media. And I was sort of wondering, how did that shape the resulting book? Yeah. The fact that you know you're writing against certain
2: Yeah, images. exactly. I mean... Um you said it perfectly. Um, I felt that I was writing against certain images the entire time. And I felt that the people who I was talking to were really aware of stereotypes were aware of being kind of dismissed um, by more kind of mainstream or scientific communities. Um, Now it's interesting because in the last couple of years, things have changed um, to some extent. There's a much more um, robust scientific and Uh, interest in UFOs and, um, the possibility that there might be something out there has been, um, you know, kind of, uh, has appeared in the New York times, the Washington post. I mean, um, there's, you know, evidence, I mean, the, the United States has always, um, secretly and sometimes not so secretly tracked reports of, of UFO sightings. Um, but all of this is starting to kind of get a lot of attention right now. Um, and still there's, that still isn't the same, um, necessarily, it's not all the same thing to talk about UFOs, um, in a kind of scientific register or even a kind of, Register of what has the government been hiding um, isn't always the same as being, let's say, somebody who's seeking um, a particular way of understanding all sorts of forms of power in the United States. So, um, you know, I was just very aware that in academia, it's often very easy to dismiss people who are close to us, but are not us. And when I say us, I am not even necessarily including myself, but I'm just putting us in quotation marks, you know, that there's a sort of image that there are, there's some kind of, you know, mythical other, but the mythical other who is sort of right next door. And we define ourselves against people who are kind of close to us, but are not us. We all do that. Um, and, and there's a way that people who believe in these sort of devalued or debased sorts of um, things like UFOs or, or other things um, kind of become symbolic of, of a kind of close other that, that creates um, a dismissal that, that I really did want to push against.
1: Slash nbn fifty to get fifty percent off.
0: Well, and one of the things I found that was so um, interesting within the book is that, you know, even within this sort of um, story of people who tell UFO stories that right that go beyond the like they don't exist sort of narrative. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You note that there are different kinds of UFO stories. So, one mm-hmm. of the to me, one of the most interesting contrasts you present is between the way members of the UFO Experiencers support group discuss the uncanny and then the scientific discourses, on the other hand, that are employed by members of the mutual UFO mm-hmm. network. And I, I thought the contrast there was really interesting yeah. for groups that probably are very often lumped together, right? And then, you know, I also found it really interesting that you wrote of the support group and you, know, you said, uh, in here, the main thing is that you are going to be believed and heard Mm -hmm. while you swim head on into the weird. Mm -hmm. And, and I thought maybe you could tell us a little more to invoke what does it feel like to be a part of that?
2: Yeah. I mean, it was wonderful really. Um, so, you know, there are even with, even in terms of the narrative of UFO abduction, there's a, there's an abduction, abduction narrative right now that probably everybody is familiar with where, you know, you're sleeping or driving and little gray aliens with the big eyes come and abduct you. You have missing time. They experiment on you. They might take your sperm and eggs. They might create hybrids. um, And they return you. And this is a, this is a convention, you know, I'm not saying it happens or it doesn't happen again. I have to be really clear, but the ways in which we tell stories become conventionalized, there's always something that you foreground and something that you background. That's true of, Anytime you tell a story at all, there's always something on the cutting room floor, right? And this particular story um, of the kind of um, clinical traumatic UFO abduction um, became um, kind of rose on the narrative arc of Uncanny America in the 1980s and remained there. And for some believers, that was the kind of, um, that, that was the sort of Master narrative, if you will, of, of UFO abduction, and others were probably not true. They were sometimes called you know confabulation or fantasy, but if they were consistent with that story that was heard over and over again, especially under hypnosis, then you know then it might be real and other stories were just muddying the waters and and making it more difficult for this story to to be believed. But the people i I knew and know today um, understood the UFO as A way to kind of connect the sense that there's just more to human experience. There's more to memory. There's more to states of consciousness than the kind of ordinary ways in which we tend to just um, organize, um, you know, reality versus fiction. Say, and people have a lot of strange experiences. I mean, this is this is something I can say is, is a human universal, As we have different states of consciousness. We have encounters with um, beings that don't seem thoroughly human, but don't necessarily seem to be um, any kind of classifiable um, animal, um, that we have experiences that seem like they might be dreams and they might be memories and we're not quite sure what they are. And that entering into that sort of liminal um, social space, making it something that isn't just sort of some weird thing in the back of your mind that you try to forget about, um, or convince yourself it didn't happen, or just sort of think like, "Yeah, that's this weird thing. I'm embarrassed for anybody to know about it." But to actually cultivate it, to make it the basis of your social world, to feel like exploring it is is worthwhile and um, important, and that doing so um, opens opens up the world in a particular way, not just through, you know, the actual weirdness that you experienced, but that it, it pushes back against a kind of um, expectation of, you know, um, just a very kind of black and white rationalized, um, you know, um, understanding of, of what's speakable. Um, and, and the UFO became a way to organize all of that. So, you know, I love thinking about this is the weird. And the weird was for me the way people often talked. People talked about something called weirdness or the weird. And the weird is, um, you know, it's it's kind of a scary topic if you aren't interested in, in pushing <laughs> pushing against the, guy, the kind of non-weird. Um, so... Yeah, so that's that's what that was. I thought it was um, a way that people could really connect with each other around around this aspect of of being human, and and then within that, um, there's a politics to it because that was a place where people often tried to think about um, aspects of power in America that might not necessarily be um, easily theorized. So. Thank you. Well,
0: that, you know you note the the sort of political context in which the mm-hmm. sort of alien craze of the mm-hmm. 1990s took place and and I'd say that conservativism conservatism and radicalism thread throughout mm-hmm. the work in mm-hmm. complicated ways so so maybe could you tell me a bit more about how you do see politics yeah
2: I mean I saw this I, as you know this book took a really long time um, to be published um, for various reasons but by the time I actually decided to you know, make this into an actual book and, and publish it, um, we had gone from um, a period of time where conspiracy theory, for example, or anti-government sentiment or affects around the sense that there is a kind of they working behind the scenes and that different kinds of power structures were connected, all of that. Was was pretty marginal um, back when I was really doing the bulk of this research, and then um, a lot of a lot of those beliefs um, got taken up in the mainstream, and a sense that there can be conspiracies, a sense that um, you know there's sort of more to power than meets the eye. These these all became much more kind of politically legible affects, um, especially in the last decade. And um, so what I see here is the sense from before it's really recognized as having a mainstream um, um, reality to it or um, any, any kind of um, relevance to the mainstream, let's say, um, there was there were already a lot of people talking about power talking about the fact that there has to be something more to, than, than what we see, talking about the fact that the kind of master narratives that we live by aren't enough to really explain things, talking about the ways in which history sort of builds up and and um, resonates with whatever is happening now. And and you can see the seeds of this um, the sense of urgency, that, that this isn't enough, you know, that the, the kind of explanations... Um, or the kind of quotidian master narratives that people live by, they just weren't enough. And so there's already this sense of, of, you know, that something is missing, something is wrong. You can't quite put your finger on it, but there's something that isn't quite right. And then that, that public affect, which is seen as marginal just a couple of decades ago. um, Well, I think it becomes, um, you know, something that um, gets picked up on by people who do have power and um, and gets elaborated on in all sorts of other ways. But you can see that these sorts of affects, that something isn't quite right, that something's missing, that things are moving along at a, at a pace that doesn't make sense. All of those feelings are already there, you know, long before they've been discussed as, as relevant to the mainstream or politically relevant in a mainstream way.
0: Well, and And thinking about power, I mean, one of the continuing themes throughout the book is this idea of mm-hmm. they, right? Mm-hmm. The they in quotes or the powers that yeah. be and and who they are. and And what do sort of they represent and and how do they fit into the stories that you heard?
2: Yeah, I mean, that's sort of one of those irreducible mysteries, right? Um, I think talking about they is is a way of theorizing that in modern capitalist society, um, you really can't just pinpoint an individual or a specific organization who's responsible for the ups and downs, or vis- any of the vicissitudes of um, of injustice, or um, you know, collapse, loss, um, sometimes bounty that there's, there's an entire, um, structure of things and some people benefit and some people really lose out. And it's very difficult to say, um, who it is, who's making it happen. I mean, who is, who is morally responsible, um, for, um, the kinds of shifts that let's, let's just take climate change, for example. Um, when there's systems in place that nobody can really quite grasp, there is the sense of a they really makes a lot of sense. You know, Um, it's, it is a shadowy sort of agency, but it's not that nobody's responsible. Some people are profiting. Some people are, um, you know, acting in their own interests. um, And yet it's really difficult to tear it all apart and point fingers at specific individuals or agencies. Um, So it's a way of talking, I think, structurally about power. I really do.
0: I like that. I I find that really compelling and also... Mm-hmm. I mean, t- talking about resonance, right? Th- that does, that sort of resonates with me in a way that sort of this, this idea of sort of conspiracy or the, they, the mm-hmm. unidentifiable, they, uh, of of course they are unidentifiable yeah. in the complexities yeah. um, that make up our economic and political mm-hmm. and cultural system, right? Especially now, perhaps always, but, but maybe especially yeah. now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, You know, I also thought it was interesting. This is rewinding a little bit, but you talked about the way that individuals use UFO stories to connect to Mm -hmm. one another. And I was also interested in the way in which those U.S. UFO stories connect to other kinds of stories. For instance, you've mentioned captivity narratives from Mm -hmm. early America. And uh, that was sort of a left turn you took in the book that I wasn't Mm -hmm. sure what to make of it first. But then the more I read about it, the more there did seem to be, you know, resonance there. So so I wondered if you could talk a bit about the connections you saw and and why you feel they're significant.
2: Well, when I first started talking to um, people who I would say... Um, are really interested in UFOs, either abductees or people who just um, are really interested in in describing their belief with each other. Um, People talked about um, Native Americans a lot. Um, And now there are certainly Native American people who also make connections between UFOs and indigenous societies. But here I'm not really talking about, oh, did you know aliens Build the pyramids, or something like that that's a that's an entirely other discourse that I'm really not talking about. I'm talking about this sense that people had that um, the experience of being colonized by technologically superior beings from another world, um which could be how you would describe alien abduction today, um resonated with what happened in our own country (laughs) um, from the 15th century onward. And people often talked very empathically about, you know, I think that this must quote unquote, you know, this must be kind of like what it was like to be, um, you know, indigenous to North America and have these strange ships come over and um, dominate you. You know, maybe that's what's going on. Maybe we are being dominated by um, another, another group that has technological superiority and is, you know, basically going to colonize. And I heard that so much that, um, it, it seemed like part of the story. And so I started to look at these early, early American stories of captivity. Um, really the, the first, I write about the Mary Rowlandson, uh, story in the book, um, these captivity narratives from the beginning of, of what it meant to be, you know, American, as opposed to just, you know, English in another place were encounters with others and the ways in which, um, these stories of whites being captured by native Americans, um, this just became a genre, became a convention really quickly. So what wasn't told were all these stories of native Americans being captured by Europeans, Um, And when you have one story that just becomes really dominant, that becomes really foregrounded and another story that becomes um, sort of invisible, um, you realize something is happening. Something cultural and political is is happening there. And really these stories have structural similarities to the UFO uh, abduction story. So, you know, I'm thinking about resonance. I'm thinking about why these stories um, kind of connect to each other for people, and um, the captivity is is this point of of deep resonance, um, and it's a way of of thinking about encounter and and being othered and and the earth. You know, um, so you know, I saw the not that I think, and it's very important not to say that a UFO abduction story is really you know, just symbolic of some other kind of real story. I'm not saying that. I'm saying that the way people organize and narrate their experiences um, are part of the kind of historical narrative um, fabric that that we um, that we have as our birthright, and that we enter into, and that helps organize and make sense of, of the world for us. And we have this we have this history, right? We have this history of the fact that America was founded um, in a, you know, on a on the basis of many kinds of violent captivities and from um, dominating and um, colonizing Native Americans to slavery and that these stories are still with us. Right. They're still. They're still circulating quietly. They still make up what it means to be American. And these UFO stories use many of the same kinds of imagery and tropes and um, kind of narrative components that some of those other historical stories do. And it seems like it's not, again, I'm not saying, well, one is real and one isn't real, or one is symbolizing and the other one. I'm saying that all together they create, um, a world. They create a kind of a web of of experience in america of of captivity
0: well, and and I think in addition to to trying to put the book into its historical, I put these stories, sorry, into their historical and cultural contexts, you also think about regional mm-hmm. context, right? and and the way in which the this western context, of the cities that yeah. are associated with UFOs mm-hmm. like Rachel Roswell and, and how did the West and ideas about the West shape um, shape the book yeah. or, or, shape your understanding of the UFO stories you were
2: hearing? Yeah, it really did because um, well, first of all, it's important to, you know, anybody who's listening this, to this, who um, is interested in, in this topic will know that there are UFO sightings everywhere. There have been abductions everywhere, in New York city. I mean, really um, the first, <laughs> the first kind of classic UFO abduction was in New Hampshire um, in the early 60s. Um, But there's something about the American West, which has been so particularly mythologized um, as this sort of site of heroic colonization that this story's, and it's also an incredibly militarized place. It's a place where, um, you know, the kind of colonization of native peoples and militarization um, happen so much in the same spaces um, that, you know, it's also become a place with a lot of UFO tourism and all of these stories, you know, they, when you're there, you see them happening side by side. I mean, quite literally you could get a, you know, a pamphlet about, you know, a, how to kind of, what kinds of things to do in the West. And you might see UFO go on a UFO tour and go on a, you um, pioneer tour all in the same booklet, you know? So, um, so these, these really echo off of each other.
0: No, they, they definitely do. And, and again, those sort of the mm-hmm. resonances between them are, are interesting. And a, another sort of angle of approach that you use in the book is your choice to represent excerpts mm-hmm. from interviews
2: in the right. form of poems.
0: And I wondered if you could talk a bit about that decision and, and about how yeah, poetics yeah, figure into the
2: you. study. Um, So I had to think about what resonance meant. I didn't want it to simply mean um, I myself was taking these stories um, simply for their content and then trying to kind of create parallels between them. Instead, what I saw was that telling stories in a particular way that foregrounds resonance is actually, I believe, um, a human expressive creative activity. I think that Every time we tell stories, we're, we're doing something creative and expressive. And it wasn't just that people were sort of making these meta comments about this story is like that other story. A is similar to B. It was the way in which people told stories that you could start to hear um, resonance. You could hear parallelism. You could hear um, images that would kind of... Um, sound like other images. You could hear basically, you know, just the sort of poetics of of talk coming through in the way people told stories. And, you know, because of my own interest in human talk as as a kind of unmarked expressive form, um, I listened for the way people talked, not just for what they said, because I I believe that um, the meaningfulness of what we say has to do with the form, um, the structure, the, the kind of poetic qualities of what we say, and that that carries meaning as much as the content does. So um, that's one that's one reason that I put these stories in as, as poems sometimes, so that you could really kind of feel the intensity, the urgency, the kind of um, the power of a story is not, only about what is being referred to, but is in the words themselves. Um, So, so that's, you know, I really think that when people tell stories to each other in ways that have a kind of urgency to it, there's, there's often a kind of expressive quality to it. I mean, a good example, a a good parallel to that uh, might be like, let's say you are um, a congregant um, at a, at a Christian church and you believe completely. And what the preacher is saying, you believe in the content, you believe in what it's referring to. But there's also a mode of preaching, um, which uses perhaps powerful kinds of poetic devices that helps carry that message that helps produce that message. It's both at the same time.
0: Well, I mean, thank you. you you've given our listeners a, a great sense of your book and, and its arguments. And, and I'd love to know, you know, for you, as you were writing it,
2: what was the hardest part of writing the book? The absolute hardest part of writing this book was worrying that people would, um, that readers would dismiss the people I was writing about um, and that, you know, that there's a stigma. Against certain kinds of belief in our country, and I was I was worried about um, about possible stigma, and also I just think writing ethnography is difficult because you um, you know it's impossible to get everything right, and I was doing a lot of fictionalizing. I mean, I I purposely I I played with this so much, but. I, um, and I say this over and over again in the book that I change details to protect people's privacy because a lot of this stuff can be stigmatizing. And even if people um, at one point think that they want to tell the story publicly, they might not want to um, a couple of years later. And um, so the the hard part for me was, was worrying that um, people would misread me um, because really I have nothing but respect and Um, interest and um, empathy and, um, you know, basically real intellectual respect for everybody I was writing about.
0: And so if that was the hardest challenge, what was the most fun to write? Mm
2: -hmm. Ah, well, the most fun is just that I love this stuff. I mean, seriously, Carrie, I felt that the intellectual energy, the the ways in which people were trying to pursue what's real and what's true. I mean, the energy of that, um, the way people pushed me to constantly be questioning. I wish academia was that intellectually curious. I mean, it's its just, you know, the question of what is, what is real is a deep philosophical question. And um, I loved going there.
0: So if readers take home only one thing from your book, what would you want it to be? Hmm. Mm-hmm.
2: Hmm. I would want it to be, I think, that um, it's really important to pay close attention without rushing to judgment. Especially right now, we are in an incredibly difficult, polarized moment. Um, It's easy to stereotype people. Um, I think that um, it's important to try to listen to people without reducing people. Um, and, um, to try to hear other people's experiences, even if they don't necessarily, um, match with, with one's own. And, um, I hope that doesn't sound too kind of, um, you know, (laughs) nursery school, (laughs) like let's all share and be nice to each other. But, but there's a way in which the irreducibility of the, of another person, um, really has to be attended to and respected, um. That I think is missing right now and that I would hope it would come through in this. Well, book.
0: And, and I think maybe it's perhaps true more so for this book, but fundamentally I to my mind that that's the goal of all ethnography, right? That's sort of I think why most yes, ethnographers absolutely. gravitate gravitate towards it, that listening closely and being up close to actual yeah. people, it's very difficult to dismiss their views. Um, in a way that it is easier to do so to right. either dismiss or misunderstand or misconstrue. Um, when you're right up close, it's different. Yeah,
2: exactly. Yes. Well, absolutely. I really appreciate
0: your taking the time uh, to talk with me, but before I let you go, what do you think your next project will be?
2: Um, well, I've written about uh, some other things um, since then. Um, as you know, I've written about like um, reality TV shows, um, especially about consumption, consumption, practices of consumption but right now I've actually been um, writing about this new um, movement especially among um, American younger people um, who are diagnosed with some kind of um, neurodivergent um, diagnosis like ADHD um, especially ADHD um, and um, how they um, are creating societies and communities for themselves on Tumblr so it's it's very different in many ways, except there's a lot of similarities too, just because this is this way in which people are creating creating a world that um, has to proclaim um, that there's a reality that other people don't necessarily see. I've, I've been writing about that a little bit. Well,
0: that sounds great. I can't wait to to read the work that comes out of that as well. Maybe we can do another interview when, when that one comes out.
2: I would love to. Thank you.
0: Well, thank you, Susan. Thanks so much for taking the time to talk with me today.